Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Hey Jackson, wanted to let you know that you're a scumbag and may you and your family burn. All of our prayers are for you to burn as hell. Go f*** yourself, you're a And when we find you on the streets, we'll burn you, we'll f*** you up, and you won't be free anywhere. asshole. Watch your back, you mother or Palestinian we will kill you, mother Do you Nazi you burn? <laughs> now that was neither a scene from The Godfather 1, 2, or 3, but rather a real-life case of pro-Israeli thugs being allowed to have their way online, threatening activists calling for peace and the end of genocide of the Palestinians, and apparently receiving the blessing online of corporate entities like Google and Facebook to do so, while those corporations conduct their own related mass censorship of independent media voices, in this case press commentator and host Jackson Hinkle who has been on the air here as well, reacting ironically to these threats to his life on voicemails he's been receiving as, quote, Zionists got my phone number. They seem like great people. And now, putting this U.S. government repression in league with fascist elements into perspective is Pacifica host Garland Nixon declaring in disgust, I see this and its masks off time and I'll be home raking leaves instead for next November's election. Good evening. My name is Garland Nixon. Lots going on. Let me say this. When I see Israel, you can talk about how it started or whatever the case may be, but I don't see a way that anybody can look at the pictures coming out of there. I don't see any way that somebody can say, okay, we're dropping indiscriminately dropping bombs in a civilian um, environment with um, a reckless disregard for human life and say there's something militarily to be accomplished by this. Somehow, you know, um, there's going to be some good, there's something right being done about this. I look at it and I think to myself, my, my intuitive response when I see it, and when I see Israel and, you know, forget really Israel, it's the United States. I mean, uh, let's face it, Israel exists because of the United States. It's, in my opinion, it's a military outpost of the United States. As I've said, why else would Joe Biden say if Israel doesn't didn't exist, we'd have to create it to address our interest in the region, right? If Israel didn't exist, we would have to create it to address our interest in the region. The exact words of, of Joe Biden. And in fact, Alexander Haig referred to Israel as, quote, our unsinkable aircraft carrier in the region. And what is an aircraft carrier? What is an aircraft carrier for? Why is it that the United States has all of these aircraft carriers in most countries? Some of them have one. Many of them have none. Why is that? Because an aircraft carrier is used to project military power around the world. That's what it is. It is a floating military base. We can send that to your area. We can fly planes out and we can bomb the living crap out of you and kill lots of civilians, which is what we tend to do. And then uh, we can get it out of there and move it to the next country where civilians desperately need to be bombed. That has been the history of the United States empire and nothing else has changed. And therefore, in referring to Israel, as Alexander Haig did, I'm not making this up, as our unsinkable aircraft carrier, he is simply saying what? As an aircraft carrier that's floating, a sinkable one, an unsinkable one in the same metaphorical context would be a way that the United States projects military power into, and what do you know, the region of the world with all of the oil. That's all it is. This is the region of the world that has all the oil. The United States says, we don't want to have to park a bunch of aircraft carriers there day and night. For goodness sakes, they'll get barnacles all over them, and they'll be floating around. No, no, we want an unsinkable one, a military outpost. That's what Israel is first and foremost a manner for the U.S. to project military power. Therefore, when that outpost was threatened, 
by um, the Palestinians. And we could go on and on about what's going on. You know, you probably I don't have to tell you the history of what of, 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 of what's happening of Palestine and Israel and then all of that stuff. When all of that happens, the U.S. looked at it and said, OK, there's a threat to our military outpost. We use that to uh, project power in this region. So we will do whatever is necessary. I understand that after the. October 7th attacks happened. The United States did what? They sent um, generals there to help direct the fighting. They sent uh, an armada of ships there. They're literally uh, American soldiers on the ground fighting. Why? Because this ain't Israel's war. Because in my opinion, Israel doesn't really exist as a nation. Look, if the world's empire this gigantic empire has 850 bases around the world and it says that right over there is another base that ain't a country it's a military outpost anymore if you say it's our unsinkable aircraft carrier that implies it's ours and that implies that it is first and foremost a real military outpost and when the u.s decided let me let me let me say this Let's think about the old West, right? What did the U.S. do? The U.S. military went out and built a fort right in the middle of the Native American Native Americans land. And what did it do? It slaughtered Native Americans. Why? Because that was a threat. We were taking their land. They didn't like us taking their land. So we killed them all. And what did we do? Black folks, we, we, we whatever Native Americans survived, were stuck in, uh, 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 you know, concentration camps. We call them by other names, but stuck in concentration camps. Um, black people brought them over here, stuck them in concentration camps. You can call a plantation, whatever you want. It's a work concentration camp for those, for the people who live and die in it. It's a death camp. And in my opinion, that's what Gaza is. It's a concentration camp. It's a death camp. And now it, to me, it certainly appears to be a camp of extermination. You've got a city that people can't leave. You can't leave and you can't come in. So you're sitting in that city and people are just dropping bombs on it nonstop. I don't want to hear about how it started. Oh, well, this guy, you know, it's what happened. Well, this guy came over here and he punched me in the face. Okay, well, gee, I guess he shouldn't have punched you in the face, huh? What'd you do? I went over to his house and stabbed his whole family, cut his kids' throats, killed his dog, his cat. Some family members came over, killed them too. I've got a right to defend myself. And, oh, by the way, I was already in his yard. So he hit me saying, get out of my yard. And I said, how dare you hit me? I know I have a right to defend myself in your yard. I think I'll just kill your whole family. That's the way I see it. Look, let's look and get the level of hypocrisy. The U.S. screams about human rights. Here's a good one. Here's a good one. The United States literally says that the Chinese... This is an argument. The Chinese have been committing genocide against the Uyghur Muslims in the Xinjiang region of um, China. Now, here's what's interesting. There's more Uyghurs than there were before. I'll say this. The Chinese ain't good at genocide. This is the first genocide I've heard of where the people who are being genocide, actually, there's more of them in the population than there was before. But, but, but think about this. We're calling everybody around the world violators, violators of human rights, except uh, uh, the Netanyahu government. And they are slaughtering. I've never seen anything like this. This is what it's like to watch a genocide. And this is what it's like to watch your country do it. And I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, man, I remember people saying to me, we got to get Biden in because Trump's a fascist. He'll start World War Three. He's a murderer. He's a killer. He's a terrible guy. And Joe Biden. When he sees a genocide going on, says, I know what we got to do. We got to help the people that are genociding. Not let's stop this. Uh-uh. Hey, there's a genocide going on. What do you do? I, I'm in. Hey, here's some extra bombs. Let me give you a hand. I got a problem with that. Tony Blinken, he went he went over there and Tony Blinken said, of all things, I'm not coming over as, you know, the secretary of state. I'm coming over as a Jew. Well, I'll put it like this. If you elected me tomorrow or somebody selected me as the secretary of state and there was an area of the world, let's say Africa, and I went over there, I wouldn't say I'm not coming here as the secretary of state. 
I'm coming here as a black person. I wouldn't do that. You know why? Because you didn't select me or elect me as a black person. You selected or elected me as a secretary of state. And I need to go over there and conduct business on behalf of the people. Tony Blinken's job was to conduct business on behalf of black people, Jews, white people, green people, anybody in the United States. But he made it clear that he was not conducting business on behalf of us, that it was his religious. And and let me add this, that has nothing to do with it for this reason, because Israel, Joe Biden says he is a Zionist. Zionism is not really, Joe Biden is not Jewish. Zionism is not inherently Jewish. It is a political ideology. It's not a Jew, it's not a religious ideology. But Tony Blinken, I mean, the, the words that come out of Tony Blinken's mouth should never be evaluated in the context of veracity of true or false. That guy is a... Uh, just a warmongering person. He does not seem to have empathy for other human beings. And now, as nor does the leaders of the U.S. empire, and this is fairly obvious to me now. I mean, look, look, look. If there's a mafia and they say, hey, we've hired and we've, we've, we've anointed a new Don. He's the new head of the mafia. He ain't coming to the mafia to bring peace. He knows when he takes over the job as the new Don of the mafia what his job is. Killing people, stealing things, you know, prostitution, bookmaking. He knows what he is. is. So when you see the new Don of a mafia, of a criminal organization, he knows what he does for a living and so do you. So when Kamala Harris or these people come in, the United States is going to go around the world bombing people, killing people, stealing their natural resources, especially the Brown and indigenous people. That's what they do. So Kamala Harris, to go in there, she knew her job. When she, all of them, they know their job when they take it. The only thing we got is a bunch of members of Congress that are trying to fake us out like somehow they don't know what their jobs are. They're bloodthirsty killers, every last one of them. And the, they're being exposed to the world right now. The United Nations, it's becoming obvious um, that the United Nations is just another international institution that's wholly corrupted by the um, by the U.S. empire. In fact, a guy named Chris McIver, he was he was the director of the human rights body for the uh, United Nations, has resigned, citing genocide of the Palestinian civilians and he basically said this is textbook genocide he went on to say and the united nations job is to deal with this and they are powerless they are absolutely doing nothing because why the united states has a foot has you know a stranglehold on the un as so many other institutions and i tell you what i find interesting i see this and it's mask off time. You know, it's uh, it's Tony Blinken and, uh, and and the Bidens and the Democrats are like, yeah, we're here for human rights and we're looking out for people. We're stopping racism. We're stopping sexism, transphobia, all that such stuff. Right. That's what they say. That's the words they mouth. And now these people are funding and and pushing a, a, and supporting and creating a genocide right in front of our eyes. I wonder, next November, when they start that, we've got to stop Trump or whoever's running for the Republicans because they're fascists and they're terrible people. I wonder how many people are going to look, wake up and say, yeah, we've got to get Biden back in, are going to look at the Democrats and still see them going to look. Yeah, I got to go vote for my um, my person in Congress who sat on the sidelines, watched, voted for 14 billion dollars going to murder children. It's just going to. Yeah, that's who I got to vote for. I would vote for a, a, I'll be home raking leaves next November. <laughs> that's what I'll be doing. It's like, yeah, the Democrats, the Republicans, this is the U.S. empire. You know, you know, Dem- uh, Democrats and Republicans, there is an empire here. And the members of Congress are keeping their mouths shut because they don't care. They're getting paid. What They just like the power. They, to, to me, I mean, if I'm in Congress right now and I'm a Democrat, I got to resign. I got to resign in protest. I got to walk out. And I'm a, I resigned. I was on the National Board of Directors for the American Civil Liberties yeah. Union. The day I left, I think the year I left, they made 300, 300 million came in to the ACLU. That was a huge and powerful organization. When they did something that went against my conscience, I walked off the board of directors, for the National Board of Directors for the ACLU and the local board of directors. If, if you see something that ain't right, you got to walk away. If I'm a member of Congress, I have to walk away because if I don't, 
I'm complicit. If I don't, I'm a genocidal maniac. But these people don't care. And coming up next on the show... It's not the way you smile that touched my heart. It's not the way you kiss that tears me apart. Oh, many, many nights roll by. I sit alone at home and cry over you. What can I do? When baby, it's you Baby, it's you And that was memory lane music from that groundbreaking girl group back then, the Shirelles. And we'll find out how and why and their music picked up by others, including the Beatles, as Shirelles performer Beverly Lee joins us on the show. And on the occasion of the release of the book, But Will You Love Me Tomorrow, an oral history of the 60s girl groups, and the title of the Shirelles' breakout song as well. First, we'll hear a little from the book, read by co-author Laura Flam, then Beverly Lee. The songs sung by the girl groups need no introduction. Watch a movie, walk into a supermarket, or turn on the radio, and you'll encounter one of their records. Maybe your heart leaps. Maybe you crack a smile, and for three minutes, you recall the more tender parts of life. But what's the group's name? Who sings this song? The girl group sound is a genre of rock and roll that got its start in the mid-50s and carried on until the mid-60s. This oral history presents an account of the people who sang, wrote, created, and popularized this generation-defining genre. Just as now... When you hear Chapel of Love, He's a Rebel, or Will You Love Me Tomorrow, and the groups are nameless, so too, in their heyday, were they treated as interchangeable and faceless, beautiful girls to be switched around and replaced at the whims of managers, record producers, and songwriters. The singers who voiced this music were just girls, some as young as 12, and they had no expectation that their first forays into the music industry would propel them into the rest of their lives. The very youthfulness and innocence essential to the girl group sound also left these young women particularly vulnerable to be used, as women often are, to serve the purposes of the powerful. When people discuss the song, Will You Love Me Tomorrow?, from which we derive the title of this book, the women who sang it, Shirley Alston Reeves and her group, the Shirelles, are rarely spoken of. Instead, we applaud the songwriters, such as Carole King and Jerry Goffin, and the producers, such as Luther Dixon. Granted, King and Goffin and Dixon are significant talents, but Shirley's performance, marked by its deftly applied vocal wavering, echoed the openness and rawness of the subject. The Shirelles voiced a song that became an anthem for a generation and for a nation coming into its own adulthood. And yet the Shirelles, and maybe even the girl group sound itself, are at risk of erasure from the canon of pop music history. Maybe if they had lived in another era, the women of the girl groups would have been valued differently. But many of the young girls who started these groups were considered fleeting investments by the music industry that gave them remarkably shortened careers and by a society that expected them to retire in order to have children and work closer to home. Even when remembered, the genre as a whole is often dismissed. Some think of the songs as silly, frivolous, the first genre of popular music made to appeal to teenage girls. Many of those who have seen success post-girl groups have chosen to distance themselves from their early starts in this genre. When the music has been written about, The women appear in the shadows of producers like Phil Spector and Barry Gordy, who are frequent subjects of new books and documentaries. In many of those accounts, even the most famous women of the sound, 
such as Diana Ross or Ronnie Spector, are caricatures, vehicles used by men for their grander achievements. The women of the girl group sound don't often come up in conversations about feminism, but their influence in culture and music continues through to today. The women of the girl group should be celebrated, their contributions acknowledged. Hundreds of notable girl groups recorded during the girl group era, and we wish we could cover every one. If you are interested in an encyclopedia of the groups, please check out our friend John Clemente's project, Girl Groups, Fabulous Females Who Rocked the World, an incredible and meticulous listing of groups of the era. A few things to keep in mind. This is an oral history based on over 100 interviews that we did between 2019 and 2022. Only in rare cases when someone was unavailable have we used interviews from other sources. The individuals in this book are recalling their own personal histories and people remember things differently. Each speaker represents only their own perspective. We are humbled by the stories entrusted to us and we have not included stories that were passed along in confidence or secondhand accounts of events that are not public knowledge. And now joining us on the line, the Shirelles Beverly Lee. Hello. Hi, is this Beverly Lee? Yes, it is. How are you? Wonderful. How are you? I'm blessed. Okay. What does it meant to you to have your life as a performer and the history of the Shirelles written about in this book, But Will You Love Me Tomorrow? Well, it meant so much to me. I've been very honored to do something that I love and that I could uh, touch people's lives. We were told that our uh, people could chart their lives by our music. And uh, we brought them through so many phases in their life. And um, to make history as being the first female group to sell a million records, uh, mentoring young girls and uh, showing girl power and traveling all over God's wonderful world. What did it mean to you back then, also today, to be the first girl group to have a number one hit song with Will You Love Me Tomorrow? It's quite an honor. You know, uh, a lot of people have overlooked that. As a matter of fact, there was a write-up in People magazine about the uh, most popular 10 or 12 female uh, groups, and we were enlisted, and we were the first female group to sell a million records. Uh, History is being told in a different way today, but the facts speak for themselves because we were the first female group to sell uh, sell a million records, and uh, we broke the racial barrier. We crossed over the pop uh, Five years in a row, we were uh, voted uh, best female group by Billboard and Cashbox, and um, we've been blessed with so many other honors. And what do you see as the greater significance of this title of the book, But Will You Love Me Tomorrow, and not just the title of the song? It's asking a very reasonable uh, question. Will you love me after I've given you my most prized possession? Because it's, it's a, song, uh, a question that people are asking um, their loved ones all the time. Will you still love me one way or another? Will you still love me tomorrow? I think it's perfect for the book because Emily did an awesome interview with all the different artists. And they captured our hearts. They spoke and told our story. They didn't tell their interpretation of the story. Now, the group also performed with Little Richard and Edith James and Dionne Warwick. What were those experiences like for you? Oh, it was awesome because Richard is quite a character, as you know. As a matter of fact, he's showing us uh, in his documentary, Little Richard. Yeah. Uh, we backed him up in England. We did our first uh, tour in England with Little Richard and Dwayne Eddy and Gary U.S. Bond. We, um, Dion Wark was a Shirelle. When Shirley Austin Reeves was pregnant, Dion filled in as a Shirelle. We also backed Dion up on an uh, album that was produced by Luther Vandross um, when she, uh, she re-recorded Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow. And especially performing with Little Richard, what was that experience like for you? You never knew what to expect from him. One <laughs> time we were up performing in uh, Washington, D.C., and Richard sent word to the hotel we were checking in that the king is coming, the king is coming, and they thought an actual king from overseas was coming, and they rolled out red carpets. And when Richard got out the car, they rolled the carpet back up. So uh, we have quite a few stories uh, we know about little Richard, and I will be discussing that in my book. But also, um, you mentioned Etta James. 
Etta was a big sister to us. She took us under her wing because we had Etta James and we had Laverne Baker and we had Ruth Brown. So we were mentored by some powerful women. And what would you say today to young women struggling in the music world as you did back then? To stay focused. Don't take no for an answer. Do your homework. Um, have a plan B. Don't let nobody tell you that you can't. Be strong in your faith and be passionate about what you're doing. And use your power. And use your voice. It used to be a man-dominated um, business. But when the Shirelles came along, we broke that up. That was girl power. We were writing our own music. We um, were given a different dimension to uh, the music business. And what are your thoughts about this passage in the book that female performers back then were, quote, treated as faceless, interchangeable, beautiful girls to be switched and replaced at the whims of managers, record producers, and songwriters? Yes, they, they had their way at the time but they can't do it now. Um, the females were uh, treated differently because um, they felt, felt like they were supposed to dominate us. You weren't you were supposed to have a voice, but we showed them differently. And what about the negative side to struggling and being exploited as African-American performers? And do you feel that struggle was different in any way for female performers of color? The struggle was hard because of being women, being on the road, it took its toll on you. And uh, But we were troopers, and we learned to endure, and that's what kept us going. Um, we never gave up. We always stayed focused. And today's different. The female uh, groups and um, solo artists, they have a, t a totally different uh, way of being in the business. You know, everything seemed to be handed to them on a platter. They didn't go through the struggles that we went through. We went through promoters running out on our, our money and putting us in uh, some horrible hotels. Uh, it, was, it was really, really rough. What do you feel has been the musical legacy and enduring influence of the Shirelles, as well as girl groups and doo-wop? Knowing that we had our own sound and our music changed lives. It was um, music you could listen to, you could dance to it, you could lay your head on his shoulder like Paul Anka would say. Mm -hmm. um, people will remember when they're in their golden years, these are music. You won't be hearing nobody being degraded or uh, somebody has uh, overdosed, you know, from our music. Um, mm -hmm. It'll bring back wonderful memories, and it's quite an honor. Yeah. As a matter of fact, our Tonight's Night album was... Um, inducted into the uh, registry class of 2022 by mm. the uh, Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. So we were inducted in along with Alicia Keys and the Four Tops and, uh, oh, there were so many other artists. I'm blanking right now. Mm -hmm. And do you have a website? Yes. You can reach us at thechirellesofficial.com, thechirellesofficial.net, thechirellesofficial.org. And what can listeners find there? From A to Z, uh, uh, History of the Shirelles, um, write-ups, you name it, it's there. And any final word you'd like to say about what this book means to you and being part of it and what you hope to convey to readers? I am so honored to be part of it because, like I said, history is being told in a different way. And Laura and Emily have captured what we said, and they were really concerned about the portrayal of uh, how we were going to come across. Mm. The listeners will know what happened in the business, and they will see that the females who are out there performing for you were human beings, and we had lives, but we gave up a lot to come and bring our um, fans joy. And the struggle is over because we have girl power. <laughs> we mm. won't take a second seat. Wonderful. Okay, thank you so much, Beverly Lee, for joining us on the show. Oh, you're more than welcome. Okay, bye. So long. God bless you. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, testing. One, two, three. Hello. 
My name is Polly Vandersma, and I'm a Girl Friday. Well, actually, I became a person Friday a couple years ago. I didn't change the job very much. Anyways, my new boss was a curator. She loved to talk about art things. I could never really... I could never really talk to them about all the things I think about sometimes. And all the things I've seen. Patricia Rosema, and I'm inviting you to see my first film, I've Heard the Mermaid Singing. This is Patricia Rosema. Gosh, you know, sometimes I think my head is like a, a gas tank. You have to be really careful what you put into it, because it might just affect the whole system. I mean, isn't life the strangest thing you've ever seen? And now on Arts Express. Bad things happen all the time, but they're, but something like that has like a little extra something to it. You know, it's, it's not just like bad things are happening. It's like, oh, we might actually be living in hell. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. A few weeks ago, I was happy to read a short story on the air titled Thy Kingdom Come by Luke O'Neill from his new collection of short fictions called A Creature Wanting Form. Now, if you heard the reading, then you know that Luke O'Neill is a powerful writer who takes journalistic impulses and turns them into sharp accounts of the present and near future world. He's also the author of a collection of unflinching nonfiction pieces called Welcome to Hell World. I'm happy to have on the show as our guest, writer Luke O'Neill. Hi, Luke. Hey, Jack. Thank you so much for having me. Luke, I think people who have read your nonfiction reporting on what I can only call uh, the fight of the working class to survive in this country are not so surprised to read your fiction pieces. They almost don't feel like fiction. It feels more like street reporting and eavesdropping and dream reporting. How do you see the relationship between your journalistic work and your fictional work? Well, the two sort of started to blur kind of naturally on the newsletter, Welcome to Hell World. I think one of the reasons it really resonated with people when I started it about five years ago is that it was journalism, but I was writing it in a sort of, I don't know, literary kind of somewhat experimental fashion, you know, it would be reporting on, on things that were happening, but then I'd break in, you know, in the middle of a piece into my own sort of thoughts, meander from here, you know, here and there, and any kind of do this stream of consciousness thing. And I know that sounds kind of annoying and probably pretentious, <laughs> but uh, for some reason, it, it really sort of resonated to, with me. The, the, the idea was to try to replicate how our our mind wanders when we're reading the news naturally, you know, especially when we're, we're reading on our phones or we're scrolling through social media, these various overlapping stories and, and we're all holding them all in our, in our minds at once, you know? So uh, it just felt natural to me. It felt like an extension of how people think now in, in, in a sort of Twitter addled brain, which I certainly have. But then it finally occurred to me, like some of these pieces that were ostensibly journalism, they really felt like they could be short stories. So, you know, when it came time to do another book, I thought, why not just, you know, just cut to the chase? Well, the title of your latest collection is A Creature Wanting Form. Could you talk about that title? Yeah, that that title came from came to me uh, from. There's a band called The War on Drugs that I was listening to a lot. They're like, I feel like they're really good writing music. So I really got into this space with that band, and they had a song, and we don't live here anymore. And it's 
it's uh, the lyric it was is a creature void of form hearing that lyric over and over you know a creature void of form really sort of stuck in my head and i don't know there's there's this kind of ominous presence throughout all the stories in the book whether that's you know climate disaster or you know our our violence uh, gun violence and our indifference to one another and this is probably only a distinction that really matters to me, but I feel like there's a big difference between a creature void of form and a creature wanting form, you know, and, and a creature wanting form to me, it kind of indicates something uh, lurking and like waiting, waiting to be, uh, to, to fulfill its itself, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. How would you describe the stories? Some of them are sort of science fiction alike, often very humorous, uh, which is an important thing to me because I'm, you know, I'm writing about pretty bleak subject matter. You know, there's a number of stories about mass shootings in the book. Obviously, mm-hmm. there's nothing funny about a mass shooting, um, but there is something absurd and uh, maddening about our, you know, societal indifference to stop them. So there's humor to be mined in that, even though it might not make sense. For example, there's a story the story about the guy who has to keep going and lowering the the, uh, the flag outside his work <laughs> to half mast, and then there's another shooting and he has to lower it again and he has to lower it again and it keeps until he's eventually he's digging a hole into the earth's core you know i love that um, you, you 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 say it's a zeno's paradox of lowering right. the flag <laughs> right right to, that really stuck in my mind get it to not touch the ground going halfway closer uh, millimeter by millimeter but you know they're they're all sort of written in a stream of consciousness style for the most part, and and sort of my thing, I guess, is that I don't uh, really use much punctuation, and you know I think a lot of people probably find that annoying. Uh, but the people who do like my stuff, they it, it you know they say that it, it takes you like a couple pages, then you finally find the rhythm of the stories, mm-hmm. which is. Mm-hmm which is more important for me. You know, it's sort of, I was a big Virginia Woolf guy when I was in college and, and young and that, that sort of cresting of wave, like a sort of wave of the rhythms of the sentences is, is important to me. You know, if you don't look at it closely, you may think, oh, this isn't even crafted, but actually it's so carefully crafted that it exactly mimics the thought processes that a person really does do. And I love the comparison to Virginia Woolf because that's, that's, it made me think of her also. All kinds of animals appear in your stories. Hornets, dead horses, caged gorillas, robot dogs, beach dolphins. And it's, it's never idyllic. The animals are often dying or messed up as the humans in the stories. Right. It's as if the whole natural world is also falling apart around us. What do, what do you make of those recurring images in your stories? Well, it relates to that idea of interlocking and, and overlapping patterns of violence that we display as humans, you know, and animals, you know, there's, there's a story, you know, often there's a story about uh, on the beach and, you know, seagulls eating hermit crabs and horse flies. And it's this idea that the natural condition of being alive is to be starving. And there, there's really only one antidote for that, which is for us to eat each other. And, you know, you can probably extrapolate the, the metaphor from there for, for how humans treat each other, you know. Well, I, I know all your stories are going to be loved children, but which are your favorite ones? I'll put um, you on the spot. <laughs> I, I, I mean, probably the ones I, I mean, naturally you put your favorite ones up front in the book. So, you know, I do like the, the one about the flag lowering. And, and for some reason, I really like the one about the dragonfly being caught in a car. And, you know, in the windshield of a car and not being able to find its way out. Mm-hmm. And this idea of like millions, you know, dragonflies have evolved over millions of years. And here it was being defeated by my, uh, you know, the sensible, safe interior of a Toyota Corolla. <laughs> and I really like the one about the, the fox getting into the flamingo enclosure at the zoo. That one, for some reason, really tickled me. Just like, <laughs> because that was based on a news story that I read where, 
you know, this actually happened. I think it was a zoo in DC and a fox kind of, you know, made its way into the bird enclosure. And I love this idea of like the fox thinking, oh my God, this is like the one thing they don't want me to do. You know, this is like the very famous <laughs> thing you're not supposed to let a fox do. You know, I also like the idea of it, like playing over its head, like an athlete, like, oh my God, this is my, this is my championship. I'm really going to, you know, put up big numbers here. But I don't know, maybe I should ask you what your favorite was, if you have one. Well, I I love the one about giving blood and the relationship at the, at, at the blood plasma place. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> Where you, you kind of know the other people, you know, it's this weird relationship between people. You're both involved in doing something pretty intimately with your bodily fluids, but you don't want to get too close. And I, I thought that was kind of hilarious and sad that this is how people meet nowadays. Oh, was, yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I like that one. I, I think that was actually the first one that I wrote for the book uh, and um, where I kind of came across what ended up being the, you know, sort of motif throughout it of of these people. Like all the, the characters in the book aren't really well-defined and that's kind of on purpose, you know, mm-hmm. and they all sort of react to outside stimulus in this sort of matter-of-fact way. And that, you know, so like odd and and sometimes violent things are happening around them. But, you know, meanwhile, they're just going through their day-to-day routines, you know. And that, again, comes from my idea of how we live now, which is that we're always looking at our phones and we're five seconds away from looking at, uh, you know, something horrific, then like we swipe away and then there's something silly and stupid. And then, you know, we're thinking about the chores we have to do or some, mm-hmm. you know, some task at work and it just loops around and around and around. And, you know, we see that it's like, you know, with right now with the, the bombing of Gaza and, you know, mass shootings and and everything. And then, you know, we can hold those things inside of our minds and hearts one minute, and then the next minute we're laughing at some stupid, you know, poop joke that someone posts, or we're looking at a basketball highlight, you know? So all of my my characters tend to have sort of brain damage from the internet, which is, (laughs) which I also have, so. (laughs) Who are your influences in terms of writing? Well, certainly, uh, probably the biggest influence, and and maybe this is obvious in the book, is uh, Donald Bartleby, who you know the, the the postmodern short story writer. What I got from him is how the juxtaposition of again the, something terrible with humor and sort of a flat affect, you know, receiving that terrible mm-hmm. thing like mm-hmm. this very famous story the school where within you know the, the the narrator is trying to teach the kids about keeping animals alive and they end up you know killing each of the animals and uh highly recommend it if you haven't read that one but um no so certainly him uh virginia wolf like i said um and then you know later george saunders i think people have sort of compared it to and and definitely read a lot of him Hmm. It may sound strange, but to me, you're in a sense, you're a kind of war correspondent like Hemingway was reporting from the various domestic fronts. Well, I certainly take that as a compliment. I mean, that's the entire concept of Hell World is the project, the newsletter or the book, you know, obviously the day to day life of many Americans is one of, of comfort, but so many millions of us are living in a, in a war zone in so many words that it often gets overlooked, you know, it's not the same as a bomb being dropped on your home, but uh, being unable to seek medical care because you are uninsured or underinsured or being kicked out of your home because, you know, the rents have been raised too high. That's, that's a form of being attacked. And, you know, in in a sense, the entire country is a war zone. Is writing difficult for you, something you have to painfully squeeze out, or is it more like something that you can't stop doing? It changes from time to time. You know, Uh some of the stories in the book basically fell out of me almost fully formed, you know, and some of them, it's agonizing. And, you know, like you said, and I'm glad you said this earlier, 
it it may seem sort of slapdash with the with the stream of consciousness stuff, but like it really is a matter of making sure every syllable is in place. As we wrap up, what's the most important thing about writing that you know? I don't know. One thing that people often say about my writing is it makes them feel more connected to others in in what feels like a hopeless world sometimes. I don't know. That really is meaningful to me. And I don't think there's really much else to be done besides empathizing with one another and recognizing one another's humanity. And, you know, anytime you can do that with writing or you can, you know, you can maybe nudge someone to believe in something that they didn't know that they believed, but they were already receptive to, which is what I try to do with some of the political stuff. I feel like that's, uh, I mean, uh, I, I certainly don't have much power at all in the world, but if I can do that to 10 people at a time, then it's worth doing. Well, thanks very much, Luke. I've been speaking with Luke O'Neill, the author of A Creature Wanting Form. I recommend it highly. You can find out more about Luke and his work at his website, welcometohellworld.com. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with an actor strike update. On the line from Detroit is actor and filmmaker Harvey Wallen. He'll also share thoughts from the perspective of his cultural roots, born in Sweden, as to why American films are so immersed in themes of doomsday helplessness and horror, and what it may actually have to do with the rampant denial of medical care to the U.S. masses. How are you? Hi, and welcome. Now, what are your thoughts about the actor's strike and the struggle against Hollywood East and West? And how do you feel the strike has affected you and your filmmaking? Well, I think, obviously, we have to figure out, and it's not just in the film world, I just think we've gotten um, kind of uh, out of order as a society where, you know, the CEO of the company is making a thousand times what the what the regular employee makes. And I just think that we have to figure out a better way to balance everything out. It's been really tricky. So we are actually in pre-production of a film from a filmmaker standpoint. And it's very difficult because you have to jump through a lot of hoops. I had a film that premiered uh, a, a few weeks ago and we had to jump through more hoops to get the film cleared. So that me and the other actors of the film could even promote the film. So it's, it's definitely made it difficult, that's, uh, that's for sure. And I think that's a part of the problem is that the indie film community that's actually there to be a good support system for SAG and for the actors and, and, uh, and everything else has not been uh, uh, getting the, uh, the help they need essentially to help offload some of the stress on the SAG actors right now. So a lot of people are going without work, and that's a scary thing because we still have bills to pay. And what is your latest film that's just opened? Uh, it's called Beneath Us All. It's a vampire movie, and we got cleared at the 11th hour uh, to promote. So we were really excited to have our premiere and to be able to have the media and our actors out there promoting it. So that was fantastic. But but I'm thinking about all the films that, that are not capable of, of 
getting through the sticky tape and getting to the other side, um, it's a it's a tough time, and especially for the indie film community because we are uh, fairly limited in in what we can do already. So uh, to to fight a, an uphill battle when you already are fighting against algorithm and placement and everything else on these sites um, uh, is where it gets a little backwards for me. And how do you feel, especially coming from another culture, Sweden? What do you think it is about American society, particularly in the present time, where there's such a filmmaking emphasis on doomsday themes, helplessness, and horror in American movies? I think it's a lot of different reasons, but I think parts of it comes from there's a, it's kind of like a high pressure cooker here. And I think the pressure of the stress uh, that you can lose everything uh, with with the littlest uh, move of the dial. Um, you know, you get sick in America, uh, the wrong disease at the wrong time in the wrong place, and you can be wiped out from the map. And that's just not how it is in most of the uh, industrialized world. So, so that's, I think, plays a big factor into it. But I also think it is just intriguing um, to, to watch... Uh, characters under moral dilemmas and stress and see how they make decisions because it's it's fascinating. The fight and flight uh, that we deal with in our own lives is fascinating. So when you can amp it up and see it on the screen where the stakes are really high, I think we learn a little bit about ourselves. Okay, great to have you on the show. You got it. I appreciate it. Okay, bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.